Welcome to Composer Quest. I'm Charlie McCarran, a Minneapolis composer, and I started this show to share insights from other songwriters and composers about how they make music. You can hear all the episodes at ComposerQuest.com. This episode, I talk with songwriter, family man, and Star Trek lover, Tim Cheesebrow. Tim recently spent time at a cabin by himself, writing songs from 8 a.m. to 4 in the morning. Go somewhere quiet, somewhere alone for a couple of days. It's kind of like going on a creative bender. Not unlike that period in an Amish person's life where they get to go be crazy for a year. Tim and I ponder the universe a little bit in this episode, and we discuss what kind of music aliens are making on other planets. Music here might be actually kind of tonally bland, and I wonder if other species with other sensory organs, their music may be part sound and part light. Tim also talks about his crowdfunding campaign to finish his album Home in the Heartland. He's found that the benefits of starting a project like that go beyond just the money. There is inherent value in just doing the project. Even if you set the goal low, just do it, because then it gives you a chance to talk about what you're doing and get people excited about it. Wish I could stand on my own Or make friends with the garden on Tim, welcome to Composer Quest. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. Yeah. Tim has been uh, working on some new songs lately. How do you approach songwriting? Most of the time... It starts with a kernel of a melodic idea that is developed in either the shower or while cutting my lawn, which are seemingly the only times in my day when I just have nothing else to think about. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as all that stuff from the day starts to just kind of quiet down, the melodies kind of start bubbling up and yeah, sometimes I'll come up with a good one and I'll have to jump off the tractor and run inside and write it down. How does having a family and work, how do you balance your time and fit in songwriting? You mostly do not. (laughs) With really young ones, it is difficult to find time to do that just because when they're awake, they need you. And when they're asleep, they need you to be silent. (laughs) What I decided to do this time is I said, this is a professional thing I'm, I'm trying to do. And so... I made the investment to go spend four or five days up at a cabin just by myself. And I brought up some recording equipment and a couple guitars. And I said, I'm going to leave here with an album's worth of songs. I wrote every day from 8 a.m. to about 3 or 4 a.m. You know, went through a lot of coffee. (laughs) But I ended up leaving that cabin exhausted and with a whole arsenal of new material. So I would say if there's any other songwriters out there who are battling the family, professional development, uphill battle, you know what? Take some time off work, make an investment, go somewhere quiet, somewhere alone for a couple of days, and just commit to making it work. How do you go off the deep end like that? Just jump from not much songwriting at all to all of a sudden 20-hour oh. days? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's kind of like going on a creative bender, you know, <laughs> not unlike that period in an Amish person's life where they get to go be crazy for a year after being socially suppressed for so long. And I I feel like with songwriting, I'm always having to put it off and put it off and put it off. And finally, when I get the chance to sit down and do it, there's an explosion of creativity that just has to all get out at once. And 
I actually found it really easy to slip into. I think it was one of those cathartic things that the soul and the mind just need. Sometimes for me, I don't know, songs come out really fast, but then fine-tuning the details is the hard part. Like You get a first verse or something, and oh, that was quick. All right, now let's just finish this. <laughs> that doesn't happen. But did you have like fully formed songs by the time you were? They were hackish, but they were fully formed. What I kind of settled on was saying, I'm going to polish these during performance. Because I think I think when you're doing a performance, if you're playing something that's just musically awkward, that awkwardness is amplified and you really, really notice it. And so I took these songs that I, I admit were kind of hackish and I was field testing them at gigs to see what people were reacting to. And I'd inevitably make little tweaks here and there to make it work. And then they're battle tested and album ready. Yeah. That's good. Personally, I don't perform many of my songs. I feel like that would be probably a good thing to do. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of open mic nights, and there's lots of places at which you could get on a stage and try some stuff out in a risk-free environment. Mm -hmm. It's a good way to do it. Yeah. Where do you draw inspiration from in your songs, lyrically? For this album, there were three main sources of inspiration. One would be obviously my family because it's just where I'm at right now in life. Having children is one of those things that is all-consuming. It really forever divides your life into BK and AK (laughs) before kids and after kids, you know. Seeing them grow up and seeing them experience the world in a completely different way from what I understand gives me a lot of inspiration. Another inspiration was just kind of the idea of home. I'm realizing after looking at other people's life paths that it's almost as if we're struck with wanderlust right after or during college and we end up going on these treks that take us maybe around the globe or maybe around different professions or maybe around uh, different people and relationships and I think inevitably we all find some place to settle or some place to belong and many times it's right back where we started and I know that that my journey has certainly done that I've lived a few different places and done a few different jobs. And and I just found that, you know, when it's all said and done, I just really, I like Minnesota, despite the winter and everything. I, you know, I, I like being here as good people and good stuff going on and a vibrant scene and lots of support for charity work and for music development and things like that. So there's that, that aspect of home. And then additionally, you know, that, those are all kind of the inwardly focused places of inspiration. There's also an outward focus that is us finding our spiritual home to view the universe as something that you are a part of, contributing to, helping to create, not an object to be conquered. There's this idea of universal unity that I think, geez, these are concepts that if people understood them fully could really save the human race. I don't pretend to be any sort of prophetic voice that can do that for people, but I do feel that it's, it's, it has been profoundly impactful on my life. Thinking about the universe in a unified way like that changes dramatically the way that I treat individuals on a day-to-day basis. That's kind of the practical, helpful piece of that larger outlook. And so that's something I wanted to share with folks. I'd like to build a bridge Past the outer rim To the nearest star Thirty trillion miles or so 
to find what I can find Or at least to see the light From the sun a million years ago The thing that, was, that really actually helped that viewpoint along was, strange as it sounds, watching the old Cosmos series by Carl Sagan <laughs> and the new sort of pseudo-Cosmos series by Stephen Hawking and it goes uh, across, in the universe or something like that and all these shows that really go into these stellar phenomena that make you realize what a small speck we are in this larger, grander thing but yet how special a place Earth is and how precious it is, how important it is to take care of it, and how possibly common it may be in the universe at large. To have other Earth-like planets? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's an inevitability, which to me just brings up these ideas of just, I mean, hopefulness and, you know, what is out there and and brings up so many questions that makes you feel big and small at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, what kind of songs are people writing on other planets i shouldn't say people but i've i've often thought about that (laughs) you know music here might be actually kind of tonally bland what we think of as music is entirely tied to sound and sound is just a wave frequency Mm -hmm. and i wonder if other species other sensory organs may actually not have a differentiation between sound and light. Yeah. Because be they're all just waves. Yeah. And if you have a if you have the sensory capacity to view waves at different frequencies equally, their music may be part sound and part light, which opens up a whole new world. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I don't know that it'd be too different from the way people with synesthesia Oh yeah. See the world. I mean they're like, oh yeah, B flats are orange, and yeah. <laughs> and A minor chord tastes like lemons. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> synesthesia for people who don't know is where your senses get crossed over. I remember hearing about one where a synesthete would hear people's voices and then have a taste associated with it, and so they would say like, oh, that person's voice tastes like chocolate or something. <laughs> and there were some people who their voice tasted like vomit, but they didn't want to tell anybody that. (laughs) Well, this interview went in a completely different direction than I was expecting. Well, you never know what you're going to get, you know? No, you never do. I didn't know you were as big of a sci-fi person, but you're telling me about if you were going to get a tattoo. Oh, it'd be the Star Trek insignia, of course. (laughs) Yeah, I have a... Definite affinity to that particular show. I like the overall message of it and just the idea that the future could be a much brighter place than where we are now. And all of the isms of humanity are washed away and we've all decided, hey, we're not going to base our lives on money anymore. We're going to pursue happiness and mastery and we're just going to share resources because we have plenty and there's no reason to hoard them while others go completely without that's always like a view that's made so much sense to me. I really can't wait until we get there. Yeah. <laughs> Hence, maybe why you wanted to start your nonprofit for music. Yeah. How long have you been running Music Works, Minnesota? We are in our third year uh, with Music Works, Minnesota. We're really focusing now on two things. 
One is delivering workshops and classes and things of that nature to assist in the creation of new music. Another part of it is we really think that music is the most universal and eloquent way that humans have devised to communicate with one another. And we think that being fluent in that language is a necessity for mental health. Creating music to express oneself and work through the stuff that life throws at you is both a healthy outlet and an additive, productive outlet that can help erase taboos around mental health issues. It can help people express what they're going through, share that with others. And I think in some cases, music can quite literally save lives by giving people that healthy creative outlet that they would not otherwise have. The other arm is, we call it band together. What we're trying to do there is create a community of local music professionals that are going to support the local music scene by supporting each other. And we've got some artists, some music business professionals, some recording professionals and studios. Hopefully we can help local musicians develop their careers while simultaneously giving them an avenue to reinvest in their community. Yeah. So if there are musicians or composers out there with some project ideas, maybe they should get in touch with you. Yeah, well, we love to hear them. I mean, the, the beauty of being a small organization is we're completely flexible. So if there's a great idea and there's support for it, I'm willing to run with it. Cool. Tim, would you want to play a song from your upcoming album? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see you have a double capo thing going on here. One of the things that I do commonly when I'm songwriting is I will issue myself a series of challenges, which I kind of got from the composition efforts of Bella Bartok. He would give himself such strict boundaries. I believe the whole first book of Microcosmos, he said, I'm not going to move my hands from first position, but yet I'm going to write a whole book of piano pedagogy He did so many brilliant things without moving his hands at all. Those boundaries unlocked his creative potential. And so I was was trying to give myself a few boundaries as well. And one of these boundaries for this song in particular was I had realized that in my last album, I would frequently go between different open tunings, which at live shows, let's face it, was really annoying. (laughs) It was one of those, hey, um, I'm going to play this three minutes of music and then... I will have three minutes of tuning. (laughs) Not being much of a stage conversationalist, there's kind of some lull time in there. And I thought, well, I could speed that up if I just started writing songs that used capos instead of retuning. So I got a couple of capos that have holes either in them already or drilled in them that allow the strings to go through the capo at different points. And they're also different lengths so that they each only hold down a couple of strings apiece. So this one is called Favorite, and it's about uh, right after we found out we were pregnant with our second, the first was still nursing, and and I remember uh, my wife saying she felt like a bad mother because she had to stop nursing early in order for the nutrients to go to the new fetus, and I remember thinking, you do not need to be that hard on yourself. (laughs) So I wrote a song from the perspective of our firstborn who uh, wasn't able to talk yet, and I thought, this is what he might have to say.
could stand on my own Or make friends with the God we know I wish it wasn't so very far To reach up to the cookie jar I wish I could have some say In the way I'm dressed on holidays it all you could see A stranger look Making faces at me There are things I wish I could say And I tell you Every day In all this Wonderful world So bright and blue Well my favorite Part is Put on one I don't always get Instincts let me be very clear I'm tired of milk, let me try dad's beer There are things I wish I could say And I tell you every day And all this wonderful world So bright and All the things that make life great Like mother's milk and tater tots Books we read and shows we watch Nap time, cuddle time, missile time too Sunrise, chubby thousand chicken soup Where summer breeze from spring to spray The times when we're snowed in all day A harvest moon and the stars above And all the people that we love Bear the water, the temperature's right Waking you up in the middle of the night String cheese, corn, beans, my toy block Said all the things, all the things I haven't heard of yet There are things I wish I could say And I tell you every day And all this wonderful world So bright and It's really fun watching you play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> it's too bad the listeners can't see. What would you call that? Where you kind of flip your hand around, play on oh. upside down. Yeah, the technique on that one is a little different. Like you said, I play half the guitar with my hands upside down on the neck. Mostly out of necessity. The chord that I wanted to make up on top of the neck, I wouldn't be able to make from below because my hands are too short or too stumpy really (laughs) (laughs) 
I like that one too. And then you're repeating the same pattern and just kind of a droning, but it there's enough like little details that make it really interesting. Yeah, I hope so. I, I realize it's kind of a, yeah, there's kind of that ostinato thing going on. There's definitely a lot of what I call being in the drone zone. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're one guy and one guitar, it provides a really solid tonal bass. And I find it offers the opportunity for the lyrics to shine because people's ears kind of get used to that drone sound. And then what are they focused on? They're just focused on the melody and what it is that you're saying. So that that is a technique that I employ quite often for that very purpose. So you studied music composition also at St. John's? I did, yes. How do you apply that composition and theory to playing songs on a guitar and singing? I think a lot of the same underlying principles apply. Certainly the structural part. You have an A melody, you have a B melody, you have a development section where you kind of go tonally around a little bit, but there's usually kind of a C motif in there, and then you bring it back with an A melody, a little coda, and you're done. That's basically pop music. Intro slash hook, A section, B section, A section, B section, something different, chorus, and you're done. Sometimes you make a conscious effort to stick to that, sometimes you make a conscious effort to deviate from it. I think also a bit about counterpoint the general rules for that about your melody lines and your bass lines, how you should have them going in opposite directions at different times and things like that. Those rules are good enough for Bach. They're good enough for me. I think more than anything, being a composition major just opens your ears and your brain to new tonal ideas. I'm not quite certain that all of the techniques that I learned for composing opera necessarily carry over to popular music, but... I don't think I'd be writing the same songs if I hadn't done that project. Yeah. So what was that opera like? That was the craziest thing I've ever done in my life. That's what, that's what that was like. <laughs> it was it was six months of writing like a madman. I remember Brian, my composition teacher, when I told him I wanted to do that, he kind of gave me this weird look like, you're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but he was supportive. It was a learning experience. Totally valuable. I would encourage anybody to take on a monumental project like that and just jump into it. You'll figure it out as you go along. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It'll be okay. And give yourself a deadline, too. Oh, yes. I think. Because in school, it's you do have deadlines. So it's like, yeah, yeah. you're going to get that finished or you're not going to graduate. <laughs> That's <laughs> but, right. That's right. You have until May 5th. Yeah. You know? How do you set deadlines for yourself? I do give myself goals and say, I will have the songs prepared by the end of the month. And then I do it. Getting this recording project together, I was going to record the album this summer. And then I realized how much might I be actually involved in getting it recorded the way I wanted it to get recorded. Which involved listening to hours and hours of piano players and banjo players and accordion players and trying to find the people that I thought would make a really great disc and then contacting those studio musicians and getting quotes from them. And the more I learned about crowdsourcing, the more I thought, you know, this is a really great thing. I'm going to, I'm going to try and do it this way. What I learned from a friend of mine who had completed her crowdfunding project, she said, you know, the, the, the greatest benefit to this isn't actually the money. It's the opportunity to build community and to build a following around the music and to get people excited and 
ready and waiting to hear it. As I was talking about the budget with my wife, we had decided that if we needed to finance it ourselves, we could. But that seemed too easy. And I thought, I can take out a loan. Or I can work really, really hard and try and rally people around this project. And I think that's going to make a better project in the end. Because you're kind of accountable to these people who have invested in you, too. Yeah. Well, and these people also have, they have opinions. And they say, I really like this song. I really don't care for that one. And, I, you know, I take that into consideration when I figure what I'm going to put on the album, what I'm not. Some of them are musicians as well. And they say, yeah, this song would sound really, really great with this or that. Well, hey, you're an investor. You're invested yeah. in the project now. I, I I do care what you think. Yeah. If people are skittish about doing a crowdfunding project for their album or their composition or whatever, I would say there is inherent value in just doing the project. Even if you set the goal low, just do it because then it gives you a chance to talk about what you're doing and get people excited about it. Mm-hmm. So, Tim, I don't know if you've heard this on the other episodes, but I always challenge the songwriters who come in to do a, a little intro theme for Composer Quest. Um, oh. Uh, if you're up for the challenge of an on-the-spot theme. On-the-spot theme? Yeah. Oh, so we have no time to think about this, huh? Uh, not much. What are you tuning this to here? It's called Orkney. It's a British Isles tuning. Inspired by your red hair. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on this episode of Composer Quest with Tim Cheesebrow. As always, if you enjoyed the episode, I'd love to hear from you at facebook.com slash composerquest or twitter.com slash composerquest. If you enjoyed Tim's songwriting style and philosophies, I suggest you go to cheesebrowmusic.com and consider funding his campaign for his album Home in the Heartland. I'll leave you with a taste of another tune Tim played for me live, which will be on his upcoming album. Like the starlight burning through the darkness